You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. My name is Peter Maravellis, and on behalf of City Lights Booksellers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the shelter in place. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, forums throughout the month of September and into the fall. Uh, We're happy to announce that City Lights has finally reopened its doors to the public. Uh, Following the uh, San Francisco Health Department guidelines, we make our reopening as safe as possible for everyone. Uh, Please do come and visit us. You'll be able to once again browse our stacks. Our business hours are going to be seven days a week from 12 noon to 8 p.m. We've uh, worked very hard to transform the store for the age of COVID. Our original entrance um, has now been turned into an exit only. You can enter on the 271 Columbus side of the store. So we encourage all of you, please do come and visit us. uh, you can browse our stacks, and we're kind of doing everything we can to kind of keep the place safe for everyone. So as many of you know, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish in the grand tradition of Lawrence Berlinghetti's Seminole Pocket Poets series. We continue to publish books on a seasonal basis, um, new books of poetry, fiction, literature and translation, and nonfiction. Um, we have new titles out from David Barsamian, from Stan Cox, also from the 21st Poet Laureate of the United States, Juan Philippe Herrera. Also new poetry from Uchi Naduka and Sophia Dolan. So to learn more about that, as well as our up and coming events, uh, please visit us on our website at www.citylights.com. Uh, you can also keep up on our activities via our social media. Uh, we have a presence on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, you can also subscribe to our newsletter and receive uh, weekly updates. Um, and also find out about, uh, you know, new books that we're releasing as well as up and coming events. Uh, we're delighted and honored to have with us someone who is no stranger to City Lights. We've been great fans of his work for many, many moons. Uh, we've featured him at the store many times. I'm referring, of course, to Barry Gifford. He's going to be in conversation tonight with Rob Christopher. Uh, this is a kind of a duo launch event of sorts. We're celebrating two new works. Uh, first, Barry Gifford's epic new collection, Roy's World, Stories from 1973 to 2020. It's uh, published by our friends at Seven Stories Press. And uh, Rob Christopher's new documentary film, Roy's World, Barry Gifford's Chicago, of which you had just seen the trailer for, uh, just seen its release. So today is very auspicious, you could say. Um, as many of you know, Barry Gifford is the author of more than 40 works of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, which have been translated into over 20 languages. He's the recipient of numerous awards and honors, including uh, awards from Penn International, National Endowment of the Arts, American Library Association, and so on and so forth. His novel, Wild at Heart, was adapted into the 1990 Palme d'Or winning film of the same name. And of course, his collaborations with filmmaker David Lynch are well known, uh, also including the work together on the film Lost Highway. Uh, His published works include Port Tropique, Sailor's Holiday, The Sinaloa Story, The Stars Above Veracruz, Memories of a Sinking Ship, Sad Stories of the Deaths of Kings, and Perdita Durango, amongst others. Some of his additional film collaborations include the films Hotel Room, uh, a film adaptation of Perdita Durango, uh, City of Ghosts, and The Phantom Father. Uh, To learn more about his up-and-coming projects, uh, you can visit his website at barrygifford.net. Uh, as I mentioned, he's going to be joined tonight by Rob Christopher. He wrote and directed and starred in the acclaimed fiction feature Pause of the Clock, which had its world premiere at the Denver Film Festival in 2015 and screened at the Gene Siskel Film uh, Center uh, in 2016. Uh, in January 2017, he was nominated for uh, Best Chicago Film by the Chicago Independent Film Critics Circle. Uh, he wrote and directed the, uh, actually he wrote the introduction to the young adult edition of the sad story of the death of Kings by Barry Gifford and edited several Roy stories for the publication on the website, Chicagoist. Uh, he's the author of the uh, book Q-Tips, Discovering Your Next Great Movie and has written articles for such publications as Chicago Reader and American Libraries. Uh, his film writing frequently appears in Cinephile Chicago. Uh, as mentioned earlier, he just finished his um, 
new documentary, Roy's World, Barry Gifford, Chicago, which is narrated by Lily Taylor, Matt Dillon, and Willem Dafoe. So really, this is such a heartfelt homage to the gritty landscape of Chicago that, that Barry Gifford grew up in. So uh, just to let you know, we're going to be posting links in our chat function, which, from which you can purchase copies of Roy's World. Uh, we do have it on hand at City Lights, and we're happy to send it to you. Uh, we will also post links to the uh, film's dedicated website so you can get information about future screenings and also check out special content there. Uh, we're going to be having a Q&A at the end of the program tonight. Uh, you can post your questions via the uh, same chat function. Uh, it's located in the lower part of your screen. You can just uh, check out the dashboard by scrolling over it. Uh, we're going to be pulling questions off of there for the Q&A. So, uh, Barry Gifford, Rob Christopher, it is a great pleasure to have you both here. Uh, welcome to City Lights. Yeah, it's uh, great to be here virtually. Um, I, of course, am in Chicago right now. Uh, I really wish I could be there in person because City Lights is an, an inspirational place to visit. Um, but then again, having, uh, having a drink at home um, is very convenient. So Barry, let me toast you to your success this amazing book, Roy's World. Um, uh, as the subtitle indicates, uh, the first story in there is from 1973. So I guess my first question is, why did you first start writing these stories more than 40 years ago? I actually started writing when I was 11. And uh, so that would have been, you know, 1957. And uh, basically, I'm writing the same thing. It's, it's funny to, to talk about it in this way. I think I'm a better writer now than I was when I was 11. But the concept has remained pretty much the same, you know. And slowly but surely, I began to publish the stories. And then it published them as collections. But this book, Roy's World, uh, which is subtitled Stories 1973 to 2020. In fact, if Peter has a copy there, he could hold it up because I haven't even seen it. They never got any copy to me. So <laughs> well, actually, so, I had to work from a PDF. I don't even oh, have a copy. Oh, oh, you don't even have a copy. copy. So but I'm not at the store for everyone. Copy. Anyway, it's Roy's world. Um, but the first thing I want to say about this is, is really... Uh, you know, I've been writing the Sailor and Lula novels for years, and there are eight of those, and, uh, you know, various other novels, and, you know, I pursue whatever interests me, and that's what I write about, and, you know, but fictionally, the Roy stories have been going for all of this time, since 1973, and finally I decided, well, this is the time to put them all together in, you know, one big encyclopedia, and that's what Roy's world is. It's like 720 pages. I know that much because I had to correct the galleys. <laughs> so, uh, and I assume I'll have a book on my doorstep one of these days, you know. Uh, and then Rob, uh, in his brilliance of, you know, coming to me and wanting to make a film about me or my work. And I said, well, no, I don't want there to be a film about me. I've had a couple of those done in France and Italy and talking heads and all that. I said, it can't be that way. But if you want to make a film about Roy, then do that. So I gave him certain parameters and I thought he's not going to be able to handle this because yes, it's about Roy, but it's, of course it's about me. I created Roy. My life is there in many different aspects and he pulled it off. So I, you know, I did not expect what he came up with. I really have to say that. And so uh, I give all credit to, uh, to Rob for, you know, for doing this. And so they come out at the same time as the book, the virus notwithstanding, you know, as I've told Rob, don't worry about it because that film is gonna live. It'll live on its own. You don't need to have read a Roy story. You don't need to know who I am. It's really not going to matter because the film is good enough to stand on its own. Well, thank you, Barry. Um, I don't know what else to say except that your stories are going to live forever, at least for a very, very long time. Um, 
Why, why do you think you've been, why do you think you've kept returning to those themes and those characters for more than 40 years? Well, it, you know, the, in the beginning, it was just to amuse friends. So I would write these kind of wacky stories with strange characters, with strange names. Uh, and, and people were amused by it. They really liked it. So I kept writing them. And I would, you know, read them to various people. And then an older brother uh, of one of my best friends, uh, who was then about 16 years old, a smart guy. He became a dentist, so he had a steady paycheck. He really read a couple of them, and he said, where do you get this shit, man? He said, this is really from, I never saw anything like this before. He was a reader of sorts. He was a very intelligent guy, actually. I'm not promoting him just because he liked the stories. I don't know if he really liked them or not. He just thought that they were kind of wigged out, you know? And I was glad to be able to amuse people with it. And then when I got more serious about it, it was really to talk about, as, I, as we say, you say in the film, or I said in the film, it's really a history of a time and a place that no longer exists. And I wanted to document that place. So in a sense, the Roy stories are a documentation of that time. It's fiction. So I made it up. The stories are an invention. They're based on true events in some cases and others totally made up out of whole cloth. So I defy anybody to say what's real, what isn't real, that kind of thing. As long as the sensibility is there and as long as you understand what that world was. So basically from about, you know, 1947 to 1962, that's Roy's world. And where did, where did you come up with the name Roy? Why did you choose that name? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I think you once uh, pointed out that, it, you know, in French, Roy is king. Exactly. But, but Roy... He's the king, in a sense, yes. I mean, I could make something up and say, yeah, Roy is the king of his world. He's not. And, and in fact, he gets kicked around plenty. But the, the thing is, I really don't have a proper answer for you, Rob. I never did. Well, uh, a mystery is a good thing, um, as I've said to you many times. Um, I wanted to talk about a, a couple things. First off, um, the the one of the powerful things in the stories is that they are told from a child's point of view. So you're getting this time and place, but you're sort of getting it from a child's point of view. And that gives you a much different picture of things. And so I wanted to just read a tiny little bit of a story to lead into my question here. Um, this is from a story called Force of Evil. Uh, it's the very end of the story. Um, that night, before Roy fell asleep, he thought about why people did terrible things. It wasn't enough to just say that people who do something awful are sick in the head. There had to be something more, a kind of evil force that exists inside them. Maybe it exists in everyone, Roy thought, but some people have more evil in them than others. Roy wondered when he would find out how much of this force he had in himself and what he would do about it if he had too much. Perhaps there wouldn't be anything he could do, that the evil power would just take over his brain and use him as an agent or instrument of destruction. He was only nine years old, but Roy knew that this thought would be in his head for the rest of his life. Uh, so my question is, um, What's your earliest memory of racism and how did it make you feel? Well, I think the, the uh, story that's animated in the film Roy's World, Chicago, Illinois, 1953, is probably uh, the best answer to that question. You know, the thing is that I was born in Chicago and then soon after I was born, my mother and I moved to Key West, Florida. And my dad had an apartment in the uh, Nacional Hotel in Havana, Cuba. 
So we would go back and forth between Key West, sometimes up in Miami, but, but to Havana. So in my earliest years, I was really in the Cuban community. And, you know, I was playing with those kids. And, you know, I still speak that uh, kind of uh, Cuban kid street Spanish. And uh, that's where I learned it. So it didn't really occur. The, the idea of race in that sense didn't really occur to me. Uh, except when, as in the incident that is depicted so well in the film, uh, where Roy's mother is mistaken uh, uh, in a, going into a pharmacy to buy a couple of things, she's mistaken uh, for a Negro. And uh, they don't want to serve her. They don't want her to be there. The thing is, she just is darkened by the sun, you know? And uh, so in that particular instance, I guess it's stuck in my mind. You know, I mean, Roy in the stories goes from the age of five, basically to 16 or 17. And so you're absolutely right. All the stories are told from a child or adolescence perspective. And so it goes from that kind of naivete, that kind of uh, exposure to prejudice, uh, to bad behavior, if you will, uh, to how the world is run, you know, the corruption that's inherent in societies everywhere uh, all this creeps in and it's reflected in the stories in terms of people's actions and in, term, in terms of how Roy perceives it. And hopefully, you know, for most readers, it's done in an entertaining fashion, if not meaningful fashion. Uh, would now be a good time to read a story, Barry? Here's one. I'll, I'll tell you something. I don't have a copy of the Roy's World book. None of us do. But they have them at City Lights, I'm told. In any, in any case, um, I'm writing a new Roy novel right now. I'm in the midst of it, called The Boy Who Ran Away to Sea. And again, it's like Roy's stories, but it's more like Wyoming. This section called Wyoming, which is published as a novel on its own, but it's included in the Roy's World book. And uh, this is a new one. So this is a short one, and it's called Revelations. Millie Darling was always the first student in Roy's third grade class to raise her hand to answer a question. When Christopher Columbus sailed from Spain across the Atlantic Ocean and landed in the New World and discovered America, he commanded a fleet of three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Which one of, those, of these ships was Christopher Columbus on? Mrs. McCracken, the teacher, looked at Millie, whose right arm shot up but did not call on her. Instead, she surveyed the room and called on a girl named Vita Bloom, who rarely volunteered an answer. Vita sat next to Roy in the third row. She was younger than the other kids, having skipped a half grade, short and petite with long black hair and big gray-blue eyes. Roy did not know much about her, other than that she, like Roy, was an only child who lived with her mother. Vita stood up and said, Columbus did not discover America. People Europeans called Indians were living here, so it was already discovered. And God knew it was here because he created it, the same as he created everything. When God comes here the next time, you can ask him yourself. Most of the kids laughed. Mrs. McCracken told them to be quiet. Tell us, please, Vita, do you know when God will be here? My mother told me that God will appear again soon and will answer one question from every person in the world. When he was in Chicago in 1947, nine months before I was born, my mother asked him a question. Only a few of the kids laughed after she said this. What did she ask him? She asked him why he created everything and everybody, all the plants and animals and the mountains, the deserts, good people and bad people, the stars, the sun, the moon, and the insects, especially the insects. My mother is very interested in the lives of insects. Did he answer her? Yes. He told her that he did it because he could, that he began like any artist, which he is, by making marks, then drawing a picture, deciding what to leave in or leave out. He understood that he could create whatever he wanted to, 
things he'd never seen or even imagined. Did he tell your mother how long it took him to do this? Vita shook her head. No, because that would have been another question and she, like everyone else, was allowed to ask only one. None of the other kids laughed. Mrs. McCracken stared very hard at Vita. How can she know for certain that God will appear again? I don't know, said Vita, but I do know what ship Christopher Columbus was on. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I actually hadn't heard that one. So thanks for sharing that. Um, you're, the first to you're the first to hear it. And the audience. It's fantastic. At City Lights. It's from the new book. But it's all Roy stories. It's all the same to me. Well, that story in particular uh, makes me think another, about another thing about the Roy stories I, that I, I really... Add, add, I read that because my granddaughters, who are all in the ages of 13, 14, 15, they flipped for that story. So they heard it first. <laughs> um, one thing I love is that um, throughout all the stories, um, Roy as a character has... A, has a very, um, he has a real sensitivity towards, towards women and girls. Um, and it's something unusual that you don't see, for example, in the Nick Adams stories by Hemingway, which I know you hate that comparison, but other people have made that comparison. Um, so could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how Roy relates to girls and um, how he, because he's growing up with his mother, how that affects him as a character? Well, what really was a turning point in my writing, you know, when I began writing, I had it used as my models, Joseph Conrad, uh, Melville, uh, Jack London, writers like this, you know, who went to sea as I did when I was 18. Um, but, you know, it was a much more masculine oriented uh, idea that I had in my head. So it was after some time that I beganing, began reading more women and gay writers that I began to look at things differently. And in a sense, I really not necessarily preferred but I was more intrigued by the sensibility of the feminine writers, the gay writers, the people you know, who weren't out there being a man's man, that sort of stuff. Not that I dislike any of it. I mean, the point is to appreciate you know, good writing wherever it exists. And if somebody's telling a good story that's absorbing like that. So I wasn't you know, shutting anybody out except that it was very interesting to me reading Jean Rees or Forster or, you know, any of a number of people. And uh, just the, the way they were looking at the world. Proust is a good example. You know, it's a different way of looking at the world. And so I tried to understand that more. And when I wrote the novel Wyoming, which is part of the Roy stories, I said, I'm going to write a novel in which there's no description of anything. The entire novel is going to be in dialogue. And it's just going to be Roy and his mother in this hermetic situation, in a car, driving to the Southern and Midwestern states, going from one place to another. And it's all their conversation. And any descriptive uh, uh, description of the landscape or anything else that's going on comes through in their conversation. And so it's really the mother who is important in this. And uh, I had a close relationship with my mother in the first years of my life, but she had a very uh, topsy-turvy and tumultuous life. She was married five times. And basically I've been on my own since I was 11 years old. But it, it's really, it, it was what happened to her and women like her in a way who weren't treated equally, who didn't have the same opportunities as men. Look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, number one in her class at Harvard and couldn't get a job with a law firm in New York City because she was a woman, nobody would hire her. And that's emblematic, obviously, 
of what was going on and with women who are in more ordinary circumstances. You know, my mother was a model, my, you know, she, she was a beauty queen, really a, a contest winner and all that sort of stuff. She was uh, the University of Texas beauty queen in 1944. So she certainly had her admirers and she had access to people, to men especially. And she figured, well, it's through men that I'm going to be able to have a good life. I'm going to succeed and that sort of thing. Well, it was the farthest thing from the truth. I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but it, it got me really think, you know, thinking about speaking, you know, in a different way, you know, with a different kind of sensibility and also showing a side of men uh, that wasn't ordinarily shown. Right, because Roy's world is a brutal world. There's crime, there's corruption, there's hard scrabble living, there's racism, and yet um, there's a place in that world for women and girls to be their own person, or at least to have uh, very vividly realized characters. And I really appreciate that about your stories. Oh, thank you. That's what Vita Bloom is all about. <laughs> exactly, because in the beginning of the story, the class is laughing at her, but then gradually they're not laughing anymore. They're actually like saying, well, what, what if she's right? You know, what if she's telling the truth? It's, you know, it's pretty crazy. It's, you know, it's out there. You know, I never know what I'm going to write before I write it. I like the mystery of it. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Mickey Spillane, of course, you know, who was a pulp potboiler writer, he always said that he wrote, he wrote the Mike Hammer stories, you know. And so he said, well, I always write the ending first so I know where I'm going. Elmore Leonard to told me the same thing. So I'm just the opposite. I just start out, it could be with a word, a phrase, a description of a, you know, a branch of a tree, whatever it happens to be. I'm not alone in this. I'm not unique. I'm just saying that for me, I'm as eager to find out what happens to these characters, to these people, and what happens in the story and the circumstance, as I hope the reader will be. Where do you think your kind of um, absurd, dry sense of humor comes from? My grandfather, my mother's father, uh, Pops, I called him. And he was my best friend when I was a child growing up. He died when I was 15. And he was an Englishman, you know, he grew up in London and uh, emigrated to the United States. I'm a first generation American. My father was from, originally from what is now Romania. Uh, Bukovina, it was back then in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So he came to Chicago when he was 10 or 11 years old, didn't speak English, uh, and made his, his way. He was involved in organized crime. That was the family was also involved in that in Vienna, which was the place they were in Vienna and Chernobyl before they came to Chicago. But it was really my grandfather, and he had that kind of sense of humor that you're referring to. And he was also a great reader, as were his several brothers. They were all great readers. They were intelligent guys. You know, they went to a free school in London and they were educated. And so they were like gentlemen, but they were from the slums. They were from like around Mile End Road, if anybody knows what that used to be like in London. It was the East End of London. He grew up in the slums, you know. Uh, I grew up in a, you know, when we were in Chicago, we finally moved uh, to uh, a working class, blue collar neighborhood, mostly Irish at the time when we moved in in Chicago, near where you live, Rob, you know. And uh, so there was nothing spoiled about anybody I knew in that sense growing up. Although in my early life, it was quite different because we lived in hotels and some pretty fancy ones and my dad was alive. He died when I was just barely 12 years old. So from that point, my life changed, my mother's life changed, everybody's life changed. And everybody was looking for a savior. That's what I discovered. Everybody's looking to somebody to save him. 
So I said, fuck that, I'm gonna save myself. I'm getting out of town. And that's what I did. And just created things for, for myself, you know? And I Why created the world that I, that I wanted to live in for myself. Why don't we see any Roy stories from like, you know, when he's older, when he's in his 20s or 30s? Why, why are you only focusing on the early part of his life? Because this was the most, these are the formative years. These were the, and also, like I said, I wanted to document this particular time, this history of a place and time. After that, uh, in a funny way, even though it's interesting in its own self to some, uh, I've you know, traveled all around the world. I've met a lot of well-known people. I've done a lot of different things, had a variegated life in that sense. And there's, but then I've been approached about writing an autobiography or writing a memoir. And I said, that's the last thing I'm gonna do. So the Roy stories have to stand. That's as close as I'm gonna come. Is that why uh, you refer to, you've told me that there, it's, this is the work that's the closest to your, to your heart out of the other things that you've written. Well, I love Sailor and Lula. They were characters that kept talking to me, which is why Wild at Heart was run into eight novels, seven novels that follow Wild at Heart. And I think the best of them is the last one, which is about their son, Pace, uh, the up-down. But in any case, uh, the Roy stories, as we've talked about, you know, have been with me a very long time. And I think I can get the closest to my own heart. You know, the, the, the person, and you were really uh, very perceptive in the film, because when I said that, when, when asked about what's my philosophy, you know, what I, I said, I believe in the individual, I'm like Chekhov. And that's my philosophy. You know, I either trust people or I don't. You know, I pay attention to them or I don't. So I believe in the individual. That's the only thing that I believe in. And I judge people, you know, for themselves and on their terms and my terms. I don't know how you can be anything else. How can you be part of a movement? How can you be part of a political party? How can you be part of a club? How can you be part of anything like that? I mean, I was an athlete. I played on lots of teams. I know what teamwork is, is like and what it's for. But as far as having a belief system, I'm with Chekhov. One, one of uh, the things you say in the film, which I love, is when you say, uh, my education was in the street. And I think that comes through in the stories because um, you're not coming from an academic world. In fact, you know, you never studied writing per se. You never went to film school. So where did you get your education when you say it came from the street? Well, to tell you the truth, I hated school and they hated me. So basically, I didn't, so I didn't go to college. I went for a few months where I played baseball at the University of Missouri because they gave me money to go there. And I left after a few months and got on a ship and went to Europe, you know, I mean, that's, that's what happened. I just wanted nothing to do with the academic life. Not just because it appeared to be cloistered or whatever, but what I found was as an individual, I went to those people and sought people out who I thought could teach me. They could teach me something. I know I, I, I knew I didn't know everything, you know. I'm, I'm not sui generis like that, you know. Uh, and so I sought out those people whom I, uh, respected and if they had something interesting to say to me and I knew that being as uneducated formally as I was I wanted to find out you know who was talking to me in through their books through their films you know however it happened to be and so that's where the stories come from you know uh, and my approach was like the dead-end kids you know, I mean, that was really the world I came from, not, you know, this, you know, sort of silly world of Hans Hall and, and uh, Leo Gorsi, though I loved it, you know, the dead end kids and stuff, but it was more like that. And I'm not making anything romantic out of it. The Roy stories are not romantic. I mean, 
for you to say that the Roy stories are brutal, there's a lot of brutal behavior. Yeah, there there's is. Also, there's also a lot of tenderness. Absolutely. And so I think that's really, I really wanted to portray and convey. And again, this gets back to my idea of respecting the individual or not, such as the case is. In the Roy stories, you managed to sneak in a lot of movie references. Um, what are some of the most formative movies that you saw from when you were a kid? Well, if you read the Roy stories, you'll see because uh, as a small child, I was left alone a lot in hotel rooms. So I would stay up all night watching late night movies. And uh, it really was by watching these movies, you know, black and white movies and back in the day. So the thing is, it's how I learned how to tell a story. Watching those movies, which were put together, you know, your basic three acts, right? The old RKO, black and white films, noir films, the whatever. I watched everything, romances, musicals. It didn't matter. Uh, but I realized, probably just by osmosis, that there was a story being formed here. There's your setup, there was the play itself, and then there was the denouement, right? And finally, the climax. So I suppose that's really what began forming in my own head. And so that was my university. University for me was, yes, the streets and those old movies. You're absolutely right. <laughs> well, uh, as Peter mentions in the chat space, um, we're coming up on the Q&A. So everyone who's watching, um, paste your questions in the Q&A and uh, we'll try to get to them, as many of them as we can. Um, while you're doing that, uh, I believe Peter wants to show um, a clip from the documentary, which um, is an excerpt from one of the animated sequences in the film, uh, which is called uh, Chicago, Illinois, 1953, uh, animation by Lily Carre, who is a uh, fellow Chicagoan. So, uh, Peter, whenever you're ready, uh, go ahead and press play. Roy watched his mother tiptoe gingerly across the frozen sidewalk and enter the drugstore. The taxi was parked on Ojibwe Avenue, which Roy recognized was not very far from his grandmother's neighborhood. That your mother? The driver asked. Yes. She's a real attractive lady. You live in Chicago? Sometimes said Roy. My grandmother lives here. Right now we live in Havana, Cuba and Key West, Florida. You live in both places? We go back and forth on the ferry. They're pretty close. Your parents got two houses, huh? They're divorced. My mom and I live in hotels. You like that? Living in hotels? We've always lived in hotels, even when my mom and dad were married. I was born in one in Chicago. Where's your dad live? Here mostly. Sometimes he's in Havana or Las Vegas. What business is he in? Roy was getting anxious about his mother. The rear window on his side of the cab kept steaming up and Roy kept wiping it off. My mother's been in there a long time, he said. I'm going in to find her. Hold on, kid. She'll be right back. The drugstore's probably crowded. Roy opened the curbside door and said, don't drive away, my mom will pay you. He got out and went into the drugstore. His mother was standing in front of the cash counter. Three or four customers in line were behind her. You dumb son of a bitch, his mother shouted at the man standing behind the counter. How dare you talk to me like that? The clerk was tall and slim and he was wearing wire rim glasses and a brown sweater. I told you, he said, we don't serve Negroes. Please leave the store or I'll call the police. Go on, lady, said a man standing in line. Go someplace else. Mom, what's wrong, Roy said. The customers and the clerk looked at him. This horrible man refuses to wait on me because he thinks I'm a Negro. But you're not a Negro, Roy said. It doesn't matter if I am or not, 
be stupid and rude. Is that your son? The clerk asked. He's white, said a woman in the line. He's got a suntan, but he's a white boy. I'm sorry, lady, said the clerk. It's just that your skin is so dark. Her hair's red, said the woman. She and the boy have been in the sun too much down south somewhere. Roy's mother threw the two bottles of lotion she'd been holding at the clerk. He caught one, and the other bounced off his chest and fell on the floor behind the counter. That's not the end of the story. No, no, I have to save the end of the story for people who buy your book or go see my film. <laughs> but it does, it does bring to mind... Since we're, on the, since we're on the subject of race, I'd like to read another little story, another short one. Yeah, uh, go, go ahead. Which, which is from the, also from the new book, but it goes mm -hmm. since they, you know, Rob, uh, Peter was showing the Chicago, Illinois 1953 story that takes place in Chicago, obviously, at that time. Well, here's another story that also takes place around the same time. And the title is Mississippi. Kitty held Roy's, Kitty is Roy's mother, by the way. Kitty held Roy's hand as they entered the lobby of the old Heidelberg Hotel. They had come to Jackson, Mississippi, so that Kitty could spend some time with Rex Tiro and have a look at his girdle factory. Her son, Roy, was seven years old and had not wanted to leave Key West, Florida, where they lived in a hotel on the Atlantic side of the island. He was happy there playing baseball on White Street with the Cuban boys from the neighborhood and swimming in the ocean or the Gulf. Rex Tiro lived in Chicago, where Roy and his mother had lived before relocating to Florida. It was in Chicago that Kitty had met Tiro and begun going around with him. Tiro's business headquarters were there, but his manufacturing plant was in Mississippi, where labor was cheap and there were no unions. How long do we have to stay here? Roy asked Kitty. A few days. Rex is looking for a house to buy and wants me to help him. He doesn't like living in hotels. Does he know that we live in a hotel and we like it? Yes, he knows. Don't worry, Roy, we aren't going to live in Jackson. We're just visiting. The old Heidelberg was the best hotel in town, but it didn't have air conditioning. Only big ceiling fans that screeched as the blades turned. Kitty and Roy's fifth floor corner room was large with two beds and tall windows on the two sides overlooking Capitol Street. Even with the fans on and the windows open, the room was very hot. The hotel did not have a swimming pool. Mom, there's nothing for me to do here. You should have left me in Key West. I could have stayed at Cookie Gonzalez's house. Rex said he'll take us out in the country. I'm sure there are some nice places where you can go swimming in a lake or a river. Cookie says there's water moccasins here, more than in Florida. Rex will know someplace safe. Kitty and Roy were tired after having taken an early morning flight from Miami, so they took a nap. Rex had not met them at the airport because he had to be at his factory when their plane got in. He was going to meet them at the hotel at six o'clock. At four o'clock, there was a knock at the door that awakened both Roy and his mother. Kitty got up and asked who was there. The manager, ma'am, Edgar Grissom. I need to talk to you. Kitty opened the door and a small, bald-headed, middle-aged man in a white suit with a lime green handkerchief in the breast pocket entered the room. I'm very sorry to disturb you, but I'm afraid I have some bad news to convey. You may want to sit down. Kitty remained standing. What is it? She asked. Your friend, Mr. Tiro, is dead. He was killed this afternoon, about two hours ago, at his factory. Dead? I don't understand. La Dolorosa means bad news in Spanish, said Roy. Apparently, he was shot and killed by one of his former employees. His secretary called the hotel. Police have the culprit in custody, a Negro woman. That's all I know. The secretary's name is Willa Tharp. I have her telephone number if you wish to call her. Yes, I do. 
I'll dollar her up if you like. Kitty nodded and sat down on her bed. The manager went to the desk in the room and dialed the phone. When he had Willa Tharp on the line, he held out the receiver to Kitty. She got up and took it from him. Hello. Yes, I've just been told. Kitty listened for a couple of minutes, then hung up. Mom, what happened? Kitty had pulled down the shades before she and Roy had gone to sleep. She raised one and looked out the window. The sun was still high in a cloudless sky. A woman named Otissa Taylor walked into Rex's office with a gun and fired four bullets into him. She didn't say anything, just sat down in a chair. The telephone rang. Edgar Grissom picked it up. Yes, she's here. Just a moment, please. He held out the receiver toward Kitty. It's the police. Again, Kitty listened, then said, I do not. She listened for a few moments longer before saying, thank you, then handed the receiver back to the hotel manager. What's today's date, Kitty asked him. July 16th, 1953. I wanted to be sure. I won't forget it. What did the police say, asked Roy. The woman who shot Rex told him that she's six months pregnant and that Rex is the father. She said he refused to help her, so she murdered him. Edgar Grissom pulled the lime green handkerchief from his breast pocket, used it to wipe perspiration from the top of his head, and said to Roy, is this your first time in Mississippi, son? <laughs> Wow. That's, uh, that's quite a story. Um, so I'd like to move on to some of the Q&A questions here, just because I know that time is uh, fleeting. Um, so let's see, this is a question from Carlos. Um, he says, for me, your writing feels like prose poems. I feel like that for the stars above Vera Cruz. Can you comment on that? I'll take it as a compliment, Carlos. <laughs> you know, um, basically, uh, you know, I started as a poet too. In other words, I started very early on writing poetry. Uh, although when I was a junior in high school, we were supposed to memorize a poem. I don't even remember now what the poem was, but I hadn't done the assignment. So the teacher, of course, called on me. So instead of reciting the poem or talking about it, I said, who needs poetry? Poetry is not going to get you anywhere. I said, you know, I mean, I was just talking, you know, to uh, divert the conversation and to try to, uh, you know, just, talk about anything else you know and so the ironic part of this is that when i began reading poetry and meeting poets what i learned from them was economy of language so that you know i i, I understood then uh how i should write and it came directly out of the poetry eliminate what wasn't necessary you know, cut out all the chaff and, and, and don't explain anything. Other people have said this and perhaps done it better than I have, but I like to think that it's really due to the poetry. And so when you say it's like a prose poem, it's a beautiful thing to say and it's a great compliment and thank you. Uh, but poetry is my source. Uh, so Jerry has two questions. Uh, for, first question is for me. Who did the visual animation? Uh, that is Lily Carre. Uh, she's an animator uh, Chicagoan. Um, and you can learn more about the other people involved with the film at uh, roysworldfilm.com. Uh, her second question is for you, Barry. She wants to know who you're reading lately. My friend Willie Vlaughton. Willie Vlaughton is a novelist who lives 
outside of Portland, Oregon. He was a poor kid. Uh, he lives on a little ranch and uh, with his companion, Lee. They have some horses. And, Lily's, uh, and Willie's a musician. He had a band called Richmond Fontaine, and, and uh, now he has another one that I really love called The DeLines. And uh, Willie started writing novels. He was like me in the sense that, you know, he'd just pick up anything and start reading. And like my old friend Larry Brown, who unfortunately passed away some years ago, Larry, you know, was a poor kid chopping cotton in Yakna, Mississippi and didn't have much formal education. He became a fireman in Oxford, Mississippi. Same kind of guy, you know, and they started writing, both of them, both Larry Brown and Willie, I see a real connection between the two, and they started writing about the world that they knew, that life, as I was writing about the history of the time and place that, you know, we're talking about here in Roy's world whether it's in the South or in the North, because I did grow up both half in the Deep South and half in Chicago, the North, the Far North, as I always called it. And uh, so I suppose Willie's work, sometimes it's very painful. It can be depressing and all that, but you know, there's a reality there that you're not gonna see virtually anywhere else. And I respect him and I love him for it. So check out Willie Vlaughton and Larry Brown, too, if you never have. Yeah, by the way, uh, Willie's novel, Don't Skip Out on Me, was just fantastic. I read that not too long ago. Um, so here's a question from Jeremy. He says, I've been reading the 2013 edition of the Roy stories and have read most of the Sailor and Lula novels. I enjoy them very much. Early on, I read your oral bio of Kerouac, Jack's book. Can you comment on his influence on your writing and his place in writing today? Good question. You know, the thing about Kerouac was when I was 12 years old, I read On the Road. And so all of Kerouac's books started coming out about then. So I just bought these paperbacks. They were a quarter. And there was an excitement about them. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that Kerouac, Ginsburg, those guys. Ginsburg, I knew personally for 31 years very well. And, you know, some of the others like Corso and Burroughs. The thing is that Kerouac and Ginsburg really were inspirational. Uh, the writer Tom McGuane has always said that. He says, I don't want to hear a bad word about Kerouac. I mean, because so many people tried so hard to tear him down. And his popularity pissed everybody off, certainly in the academic world. Uh, and Kerouac, don't forget, he didn't even speak English till he was seven years old. One thing I do want to say about this, and anyway, I, I should answer the, the, the question. So Kerouac existed for me more as an inspiration than uh, in terms of a writing style. And, you know, the, it was exciting. You know, he was excited. The character, he was a very autobiographical writer. But I mean, he wrote about what excited and interested him and, and, you know, made him more animated and what he didn't know about. And so in that sense, he was an explorer. And he wrote a conventional novel that was published in 1950 that was very Wolfian, you know, or like more like uh, Theodore Dreiser or Sinclair Lewis or the models of the time. Uh, he'd gone to Columbia University. He was a good reader and all that. But then he broke that mold. And he started writing how people talked. And he just got out in the world and he changed everything in his writing style and, uh, and the stories that he told and all that. That's what interested me about Kerouac, that he was bold enough to do this. And also, he was speaking out of that French side of him, himself, that French-Canadian side of him. So he was something of a foreigner in the United States as well. And he always felt it very acutely. So that was, that, that was my view of Kerouac. I mean, look, Kerouac has a devoted following and he always will have, despite his detractors. You know, I'm not even interested in talking about that aspect of it. I'm not very analytical, really, uh, you know, when it comes to that. 
Um, Anissa wants to know if you have any more new poetry books on the horizon. Well, the last one um, was a little book that I really like called New York 1960. And it was published in Chicago. I always wanted to publish a book in Chicago. And it was published by this uh, small press, Curbside Splendor, which uh, now is uh, in abeyance, as it were. But they did a beautiful job, published this little book, New York 1960, and every poem in that book I stand behind. I love that book. And, uh, and they published some really important stuff. Uh, who is the, the woman, uh, black woman poet, Lillian, uh, her name eludes me right now, I mean, that they published. Anyway, check out New York 1960. And yes, I do have a new book of poems uh, that will be coming out next year. So I'm, you know, I'll put that together once I finish this new Roy novel. But thanks for asking. Okay, here's a question from Emily. What's it like to take a story through so many forms? Poetry, prose, playwriting, animation, etc. Did you struggle with what form these stories would take or was it just a process of experimentation? I'm not exactly sure what the question is in there. Uh, let me just, uh, allow me just to say that whatever I write dictates its own form. Sometimes it comes out as a poem, sometimes it comes out as a short story, sometimes it takes longer and it's a novel. Sometimes it comes out in the form of a song because I began really as a musician and writing songs from very early on. So that's a something we didn't get into here, but the poetry grew out of my song lyrics and really was discovered by uh, a magazine editor in London when I was 19 years old. And he said, you know, these lyrics that you're writing for the song, because I had a band in London in those days uh, and, you know, it was a rock band. And uh, he said, but there's poetry in here. So he said, you see, if you break up the lines like this, and he showed me, you know, what that meant and, and how to follow the breath and where the line should break, like in Whitman, as he was giving me as an example, he said, you're writing poems. And I was totally unconscious of that. I was the guy, remember, who spoke out against poetry in, you know, high school. So... <laughs> So uh, it came back on me. So that's, that's all I can say. It just dictates its own form. Sometimes, you know, the story, as you say, works better in one form than another. Uh, so there's a question for me wondering how people can watch Roy's World, the film. Um, we're, we had just started our sort of film festival run when the pandemic hit. So obviously, um, We've had to change our plans a little bit. Um, I'm not really sure how you can see it at the moment, to be honest. We're looking for a distributor and, um, you know, just like Barry has seven stories behind him, um, my film needs a distributor and needs some, some of that structure behind it in order to get it out. So all I can say is um, follow the film online and hopefully uh, we'll have some news for you soon. Um, Okay, so here's another question for Barry from Kinder. How do you think the movie Wild at Heart holds up as an adaptation of your work? And has your opinion of it evolved over the years? The one thing I told Lynn when, when uh, we began that enterprise, and remember that 80% of the dialogue in the movie is directly from the book, was I didn't want it to be boring. And, you know, Lynch was incapable, to my mind, of being a boring director. And I liked the film a lot. I was asked many, many times, uh, of course, when the film came out and, and it was so celebrated because it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, which is the highest award you can win as a filmmaker in the world. And I was asked, you know, if I had made the film, 
just myself, um, how would I have done it? I said, well, I probably would have had, you know, Nicholas Ray directed and had Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward in it, and it would have been made in 1958. (laughs) But since that that was not possible, you know, I figure that, you know, David Lynch is the next best thing. Well, of course, I was being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, as it were. The truth is that uh, David asked me to write the screenplay. And uh, I said, well, I can't right now because I'm writing another novel, which was Perdita Durango. And uh, I said, but maybe in a, in a couple of months or three months, he says, no, we got to write it now. I said, so you write it, send it to me, and I'll tell you what's wrong with it. <laughs> so that's exactly what happened. David wrote it in six days and sent it to me. Really, he wrote it in a week. And he sent it to me and I pointed out certain things and, and, you know, then he got to work on it right away. I mean, it was really kind of amazing because the book, man, the, the, you know, the book came out and, and um, pretty soon there was the film and the paperback and it just, you know, exploded in 30 countries. And so that was, you know, it was a great, it was really a great thing to have happen and inspired me. And really, I probably in a way, it kept Sailor and Lula talking because people were talking about them, you know, and uh, then David and I, of course, had become friends by this time. And we went on and, you know, did Lost Highway and Hotel Room and had some other projects that didn't make it to the screen, but we're still buddies. So, you know, it was, it was really a thrill, but in terms of, of, what I was saying kind of jokingly about it, and I'll tell you what's wrong with it. First day on the set. And uh, so I show up, I'm in LA. David says to me, well, Barry, what do you think about the script now? Because he'd made some revisions and he'd put in the, the uh, Wizard of Oz stuff and, and that kind of thing, because Sam Goldwyn Jr. wanted a happy ending and you know he figured a way to do it, you know, so what? In any case, the movie is the movie, the book is the book. So David says to me, well, what do you think of the screenplay now? And I said, Dave, I really like it. He sa- I said, except you left out the most important line. He said, what do you mean? And Nick Cage was sitting with us and, and I think Laura Dern, you know? And I said, where Lula says, you know, this world is really wild at heart and weird on top. So David, look, you know, went through the screenplay, looked at it and he says, by golly, Barry, you're right. You left, I left that out. So David being the genius that he is, he found exactly the right place to put it because in the novel, it's like a thesis statement. It comes toward the beginning where he put it was when they're in the hotel iguana and everything is going to shit. And so it's at the penultimate point of the film rather than more toward the beginning as I had it in the novel. And it was exactly the right place to put it. Uh, Well, I think we have time for maybe one more question. So if anybody has a last question, stick it in the chat box. Um, But before I do that, I just want to really encourage everyone to, if you're going to buy the book, and I hope you will buy the book, um, it's it's a wonderful collection of stories. Please get it through City Lights because Independent bookstores are one of the last few bastions of, um, you know, personalized culture in our world. If you're going to Amazon, you're just, you're missing the point of what Barry is trying to do. You need to support your local independent bookstores because once they're gone, you're not going to have cool events like this anymore. You think Amazon is going to do something like this? No way. You know, if City Lights closes, our host, Peter Maravellis, is going to have to go back to being an Irish cop, which is what he was before <laughs> he was a bookseller. Ask him. Ask him. Is he going to come back on here? <laughs> oh, God, you've outed me. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is an inside joke, folks. I mean, Peter, Peter was great. When, when we did the, uh, the vernissage for... Uh, uh, my book, Writers, which is a series of plays, 
uh, all revolving around writers. Uh, I asked Peter if he wanted to read one of them. And so it's a story, uh, really, it, it's Melville. It's Melville talking and Melville's encounter with an Irish cop on the docks in New York in 1888. And so Peter said, sure, I'll do it. That's great, because I had other people reading them. I think I read one, but you know, eight or nine were read by other people. So Peter gets up there and he's speaking with this great Irish brogue. He's fantastic as the Irish cop. So thereafter, you know, ever since then, I always refer to him as my favorite Irish cop. So you have a future. <laughs> It's thank you, Barry. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> well, this, this has been a thrill. I I, uh, I kind of wish we could all go out and have drinks now, and and maybe a rain check is in order. Uh, you know, in someday, better times, someday. in better times, hop over to Specs or Vesuvio's or one of the great watering holes, and 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 do that. Thank you all for being with us tonight. Uh, for for those who couldn't make it, if you have friends that couldn't make it tonight, you know, we're going to be posting this on YouTube. So uh, keep an eye on our uh, website and our uh, social media. We're going to be posting when that's going to happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's an awful lot going on. Subscribe to our newsletter. You get updates on all the events that are happening. We carry a full selection of Barry's books. So, you know, if this has whetted your appetite, we've got everything. So it's at the store. The store is now open. I encourage you all to please come on down, visit us. Uh, we're back again. And... Um, Thank you again. Please all be safe, be well. Rob, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, and I, I just want to say thank you, of course, to, to you, Peter, uh, who have been so loyal to me and writers like myself. Uh, and City Lights is really my hometown bookstore. And uh, it's always a privilege and a pleasure uh, to do something with you and to Rob, who did a magnificent job with Roy's World. And the book exists, uh, but Rob's film is going to be around at some point, even if he has to show it in a tent, you know, and have a tent show and go on the road. In fact, you ought to think about that, you know? That might be an interesting thing to do. Anyway, and thank everybody. I want to just thank everybody for tuning in. Be well, all. Be safe. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.